to another episode of Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible. I have a very special guest with me today. Meditation teacher Jesse Armas is here to speak with me about 1 John 2. Welcome, Jesse. Hey, Ariel. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Um, we, um, we have a really, really awesome passage to read today, and I'm excited to speak with you about it. But before we get into that, why don't you tell folks a little bit about yourself and how faith plays a part in your life? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I was born and raised in the church, as most of us are in America, or a lot of us. Uh, and, you know, I had my uh, agnostic phase as a teenager, and then I became like a hardcore <laughs> uh, a charismatic Christian in my early adulthood. And then I kind of fell away from that and I actually got into Buddhism and it's funny because Buddhism and meditation and things actually helped me become more like Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so now I kind of have a lot of things that I believe in. Um, and I see a lot of commonalities between the two things, Christianity and Buddhism. And, uh, it's all about making us people who are better able to be intimate with one another in whatever context that may be, whether it's romantic or family or work or whatever, we can all get along if we can just learn how to walk in love. And I think both uh, religions teach that, but I definitely do have uh, the, the Jesus and the uh, early church's message is definitely part of my life. And I think it's a great one. So happy to be here. Uh, thank you for sharing. I think um, the passage that we're going to talk about today um, reflects, I think, on uh, that message of love being paramount, being central to what Jesus was preaching at the time. And I think um, just generally uh, what we're called to be as human beings uh, in a world that can be difficult uh, to live in, in a world that can be um, cruel, it can feel cruel. Um, the, the only thing that seems to carry us through on certain days is love, either love for others, uh, the love of others for us, or um, the love that's, I think, the hardest to accept, which is the love of ourselves. Um, there are some people that love themselves a little too much, I think. But ultimately, I think the, um, the passage speaks to the, the very distinct difference between uh, walking in light and walking in darkness and uh, walking in love versus walking in hatred. Uh, this is a passage, I think, like many in the Bible, that can be easily misconstrued. It's something that I think... Um, challenges us to uh, to read in a way that um, doesn't necessarily buy into what many mainstream churches seem to have taken from it. But if we're to read into it exactly what it was that Jesus was talking about and where it where the message of this letter came from, then uh, we'll see. I think that love is absolutely the central message. I did just want to read a, a quick introduction uh, before we jump into the passage. Did you have any like general thoughts about uh, what we chose today? Um, I did. I, I agree with what you said. I think that First John chapter 2, for me, what I totally see 
is, and pe- people can twist it. So I, I want to clarify and make it clear what, what I, what I see in it is that, you know, people want to make it about like this, like Puritan, like legalistic, like 10 commandment, like be a perfect person kind of thing. If not, like you're bad. But I, I think it's the other way around. I think what John, well, I'm going to say, I know that, 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 that sounds arrogant, but it seems like what John is saying is that when you do know Jesus and when you do know Christ and when you do know the God of, that Christ represents, it just transforms you so that you automatically are more loving. And so he's saying when you don't, when, if someone says like, oh yeah, I know, I know, I know that Jesus thing, but yet they have a hard time getting along with people. He's not like condemning them. He's just saying, maybe you don't know what you think, you know, so let me show you again. Those, those are just my general thoughts, but yeah, I'd love to hear your introduction. That's, um, I think that's apt. I think that's absolutely right. And um, it leaves room, and no matter how you read this passage, it leaves room for the fact that we as human beings are um, squishy and flawed and um, easily malleable. And uh, we tend to uh, not always take the path that is the one that has the most merit or the one that has the, um, the best outcome. And a lot of times in life, we tend to gravitate towards those paths in life that are uh, easier, more comfortable, more pleasurable. And uh, it isn't to say that pleasure is inherently wrong, but it is to say that like you can give yourself over to that very easily and then it can become the kind of master of your life, which is a slippery slope, obviously. I'm going to read from the the introduction to First John in the voice. Again, I've been really loving the voice's succinct, detailed, um, and digestible introductions and little footnotes lately. I'm not sure if it's just a mood that I've been in or uh, the passages that I've been reading being a little, a little deeper than um, the sort of surface level passages that we might have kind of approached on the show in the first, uh, first few episodes. But The um, introduction says, this letter was written by John the Emissary, one of Jesus' earliest followers, before he became a disciple. John worked as a fisherman with his father Zebedee and his brother James on the Sea of Galilee. Once he joined Jesus, John became one of Jesus' closest friends, part of an inner circle within the Twelve that included Peter, Andrew, and James. But out of all the disciples, it seems that John had the closest relationship with Jesus, He was known as the disciple loved by Jesus. And the quotation there is uh, quoting the Gospel of John 19, 26 uh, and 21, 7. John writes this letter from Ephesus, a bustling seaside city whose ruins are now found in western Turkey. Although 1 John is classified as a letter, it doesn't have all the elements of a letter written in its day. It has no typical opening or closing. In fact, it is not written to one person or church in particular but it is directed to several different churches made up mainly of non-Jews. He writes this letter as an old man after serving in ministry for a very long time. He uses a tender fatherly tone towards people he views as his spiritual little children. The new generation of Christians who have not seen Jesus with their own eyes as John did. Uh, there's a little more in there, but I think that kind of, that kind of gives the context for some of the odd phrasings that John uses in this uh, there are definitely parts of it where you wonder, like, it does feel specific um, to certain groups of people, but John isn't speaking to a particular church here. He's not speaking particularly to a group of people. Uh, I think he's just speaking to 
the church in general in its infancy at the time. So you hear these phrases in, in the letter, like my little children or young men. Uh, and it's more of an indication of uh, people's spiritual journey um, when they are, and this is actually a conceit that Paul plays with a little bit in his letters. Uh, when you are spiritually young, when you're spiritually in your infancy, uh, you can only really digest uh, the the simplest of food, uh, spiritual food. But uh, as you grow older and you become more fortified and you become stronger, then you can um, you can grow and you can become a, a more prominent force for spreading the gospel, I think is what John's getting at with those phrases. Anyway, I'm going to go back to the ESV. Do you have a, a translation of choice for the Bible? Uh, I don't. I actually love my, um, I don't even, my, my 26 translation Bible here. It's pretty cool. It, it goes through like the born King James, but then there's like a lot of like, really, it doesn't go like every verse doesn't have 26 translations. That'd be a huge book, yeah. but wh- whoever edited it, they like pick like really like ones that stand out. And so you'll have like four or five different versions per scripture. And so I always find, you know, I mean, the Bible can be interpreted in so many ways, which can be scary, but it can also be like a blessing because like we get to just see things in a new light. So I just love to kind of see different ways that people have, have interpreted and translated the words. And sometimes one will really speak to me. So, um, but as far as just like the daily reading or whatever, whatever, NIV, I don't know, ESV, whatever's available on my app or what have you. Okay. I, I haven't seen uh, something like that with that many translations side by side. That's a really interesting method. And I think that it's important to consider, and I've said this, I think, probably a dozen times on the show so far, that uh, this uh, this book wasn't written in English. So I think you would do well to consider that there are uh, a number of ways which the original text could be interpreted. There are a number of ways which translations in our language have interpreted it. And there are... Um, there are a lot of different messages that could be conveyed in lots of different ways if you read them a particular way. So that's kind of a confusing phrase. But basically what I'm saying is don't take everything from one translation. It's uh, n- none of them get it all right. I really genuinely believe that in my heart. I don't think there's a single English translation that doesn't have its own flaws. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think I read the ESV the most because it has, it maintains some of the like poetics of the King James without um, without still being like mired in that old English language that is so hard to read to me. Anyway, um, let's jump in. Uh, the header in the ESV for chapter two is Christ, our advocate. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is a pretty loaded couple of sentences to start on, so I kind of want to pause there. Do you think, and this is how I'm reading this, and I'd like your your opinion on this. It seems as though what John is saying here is that you're going to sin. Like, uh, eat little children or young men or, uh, you know, fully grown, spiritually full grown adults, um, your sin is inevitable. So while 
it should be important for you to attempt not to sin in whatever capacity you, you know, you can. Your sin is forgiven, and um, that that work has been done by Jesus. So it's like, do your best, but you're gonna fail. Do you? I mean, do, how do you read that? Yeah. Well, I think that. Um, Number one, do I think that I'm probably going to fail over and over in my life in in so many ways? Definitely. And I want to make that clear. Um, I hope I get better and better. Um, But do I think that, you know, that we can get, you know, like like Paul talks about, he says that, you know, like, there's going to be a day when when people who believe in Jesus are going to like attain like the fullness of his stature. They're going to be just like him. And it's, it seems to me that, that Paul was somebody like that. John was somebody like that. There was so many saints that are like that. And I think that we like idolize saints, but we have to remember there are people just like you and I, and, and they're not, they're not perfect either, you know? And so and maybe, maybe perfect's the wrong word. Like perfect means like a hundred percent of the time you never do anything wrong. That's kind of weird. Maybe it's just more about like walking in love and knowing love and you'll still fall in that, but how much can we grow in that? So when I read these, this verse, uh, how I read it is I read John saying, look, the reason why I'm talking to you about Christ is because what, the more and more revelation and insight you get into the Christ reality, you're going you're gonna to walk in love more and more and more. You're going to sin not. doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. But then to like make you feel safe, he says, like, and even if you do mess up, it's okay because there's somebody named Jesus Christ who is living the perfect life for us. Um, and I, and I love, uh, a couple of translations I have here in this, in this, in this book. Um, so like the, the Knox translation says for, oh, we're not in verse two yet. Sorry. I'll wait. But, um, I do want to talk about, uh, that word advocate. We have an advocate with the father. Uh, I don't know how, I don't know. I don't know your, your theology, uh, Ariel, and I'm totally cool with whatever it is. But for me, I just think that, you know, I don't consider myself an evangelical Christian. And uh, one of the things that I really don't like about evangelical Christianity, and there's a lot that I love the people, but is, is you know, uh, penal substitution theory, the idea that, you know, Jesus was, you know, beat up by God because God wanted to beat us up. And like, that's like a relatively new idea in Christianity. And I hope I'm not like pressing any buttons here, but no. um, just presenting a different view. Um you know, that word advocate, if you look it up in all the other times it's used in, in the New, Te- New Testament, it actually means helper, comforter. It's somebody who's helping us out. And so um, I'll save a thought till we get to verse two. But, you know, what I believe personally, um, just from my studies and, and my walk with God, is just that, you know, uh, does God want us to like grow and grow and grow in love? Yeah. But even when we, when we fail at that, we don't have to depend on ourselves because there's a human being named Jesus who somehow mystically he's living the perfect love life for us. And we get to be included in that for free, which I think is really, really awesome. It kind of takes the weight off your shoulders and mm. it actually frees, it actually frees you to even want to love more because I think what, what holds us back from loving is like this like mindset of like, you gotta be perfect. You gotta do this. You gotta do that. And if you don't feel shameful and if you do feel prideful, if we can let go of the whole performance mentality uh, and that that's what happens when we trust in Christ for self, just for justification instead of self justification, I think that we actually love more effortlessly, but I'll, I'll pause there with that thought. I, I think you're absolutely right to love, to truly love and not just love God, but to love other people. Uh, takes a kind of vulnerability that many of us are not willing to extend. Um, we have a world that we're living in right now that's very judgmental. Uh, it can be um, it can be very challenging just to kind of like walk through your life and not feel like you're constantly 
uh, and this may just be my own hang up, but to feel like I'm constantly being kind of judged or being stared at or kind of just like, um, whatever, um, whatever my, uh, my, you know, particular issues may be, they always feel like they're under a microscope in reality. They're not. Uh, but even if they are, uh, the only person that, you know, judges me truly, the only person that is allowed to truly judge me is God. And uh, God knows that um, my sins have been spoken for already, that my sins have been forgiven already. So as long as I continue to walk in love, as long as I continue to, um, you know, allow myself to be vulnerable and love other people, then I'm doing, you know, the same work that Jesus did, not as well as Jesus did it, surely, but it's the same message. Yeah, that's great. I want to read the the second verse. I did skim over it in the ESV, but I, I want to read the second verse in the voice because um, I think they, they, they phrase it beautifully. Actually, I want to read one and two again in, in the voice because the, uh, the phrasing is a little funny. And I think it kind of uh, it speaks to the use of advocate because it's a, that's a slippery word too. It's a difficult one. Uh, so it says, you are my little children. So I'm writing these things to you to help you avoid sin. If however, any believer does sin, we have a high powered defense lawyer, Jesus, the anointed, the righteous arguing on our behalf before the father. It was through his sacrificial death that our sins were atoned, but he did not stop there. He died for the sins of the whole world. I don't love the use of high-powered defense lawyer here in reference to what Jesus did. Me either. I'm glad you feel that way. <laughs> it's, it's very strange. And that Jesus, uh, being 100% man and 100% God, would feel the need to uh, then argue in a court of law for the purposes of human beings to to be forgiven to God, who is one with Je- I mean, that metaphor makes no sense to me at all. Yeah, I love that. Um, the, the phrase I wanted to focus on in verse two in, uh, in the ESV, but also for the sins of the whole world, there was, um, I was telling you a little bit before we started recording about a sermon that I listened to about this particular, uh, passage and the sermon was very, uh, hellfire and brimstone It was very kind of angry And the pastor warned specifically on this line not to allow the use of uh, dying for the sins of the whole world to allow you to slip into some kind of universalism. Uh, (laughs) I just thought, well, what does it fucking say then? What am am I supposed to take from this phrase? How, How do you interpret when you see Jesus died for the sins of the whole world and to love everyone? How do you take, I mean, how do you take that? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, like, uh, and again, I don't want to pick on evangelical Christians, but maybe I do, but I think that, you know, like what... <laughs> it's okay. It's well-trodden <laughs> ground on this show. It's yeah. I, I think what they're lacking is just a strong Christ, Christology and, and, and even a biblical Christology, obviously. I mean, because, you know, the New Testament, the New Testament makes it clear that, you know, all creation consists and abides inside of the person of Jesus Christ. And so there is no separation from Jesus Christ. You can't, wherever you go, you can't 
be away from him. I mean, even David said in the Psalms, like, even if I were to go to hell or Hades, you're there with me. You know, God and therefore Christ is everywhere with everyone at all times. And so it, it only makes sense that whatever he did in his incarnation and death and burial and resurrection and ascension and, and continuing inter- intercession, he's doing for everybody. How could it not be that way? We literally exist inside of this person named Jesus. The cosmos does. Every human being, quote, good people, quote, bad people. So, I mean, it's not about universalism. It's just about the facts that come from the Bible that say that creation and all creatures itself themselves exist inside of Jesus. So, I mean... Uh, that's not necessarily universalism, but it is a universal truth about everybody that he's, that everybody exists inside of him. And and you can't deny that. There are often references to being in Christ in the letters um, from Paul and, and any of the epistle uh, or letter writers in the new Testament. And I think that speaks to exactly what you're referring to there. We all exist in a world that is, um, that is not just created by God, but is inhabited by God. We move within it. And uh, and the, the Gospel of John, not the letters of John, but the Gospel of John, makes mention at the very first uh, line that Jesus was there at the beginning, Jesus will be there at the end. Um, it has always been uh, that Jesus was here, and, and this was, I'm not part of, um, personally part of the school of thought that thinks, well, it's all been planned out. This has all been part of the big plan and everything happens for a reason. But I do believe that um, that love, that eternal forgiveness, that eternal love that Jesus represents is the like true force of good in the world. That like uh, when we can capture that and we can express that in our lives, we truly live out um, the message of, of the gospel. That we truly live out what Jesus meant to to be preaching when when he was preaching yeah that's great um okay so let's go to verse three because we uh we hung up on those first two but i mean come on it's very um it's pretty dense (laughs) (laughs) uh verse three it says and and by this we know that we have uh and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments whoever says i know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly love, uh, uh, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, this is where the challenge occurs. Um, you can say that you know Jesus, you can say that you love Jesus, but if you don't behave in the way that Jesus behaved, then you're, what you're saying means nothing, right? I think is generally the the gist of what I got from that. Yeah, and I think one thing I want to point out, because if anybody has a brain, they're probably going to call us out on this. You know, we, we just talked about, or really I talked about uh, a lot about how Everybody exists in Jesus, and yet right here, John seems to be saying, well, if you don't walk in love, you are not in Jesus. And I think, you know, there's different ways of being in Jesus. Um, And so the most important way is just our natural default setting that as creatures created by Jesus in Jesus, we're always in him. But in this context, you know, John is talking about, you know, you're walking like Jesus might be a better way of saying it, or you're walking in unison or synchronicity with Jesus and the the Christ love reality. and yeah, again, like I think that, you know, uh, and I know Ariel, you're not doing this, but I know that people 
take these verses, like I said earlier, and they want to make it this like uh, 10 commandment deal. Like you better be good because you're not being good. Well, then you must not know Jesus. And so people probably don't know Jesus, not in a bad way. Like I'm not condemning them. And so now they're, they're, they're really not going to know Jesus with like their legalism. Right. Cause it's, it's legalism that keeps us from running to Jesus. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. And so, um, again, I, I think what he's saying is that, and, and right there in verse five, he says, whoever keeps the word or the commandments of Jesus that's the kind of person in whom love has been perfected or love has been fulfilled and completed. Like they've realized love. And when you realized love, what did Jesus say? Freely you have received now freely give when Mm. you just, when you, when you experience true love, the the only kind of love that can come from the Godhead, agape love, it's you're, you just can't help, but give it back to those around you, give it back to God, give it back to creation. And I, and I think, you know, John is not saying like, act a certain way. He's saying submit to a process in the same way that if you plant a seed and water and give it sunlight and love it, it's, it's going to produce something naturally. If we would submit ourselves to the force of love through the sacraments, through reading the Bible, through prayer, through whatever, whatever it is for you, something's going to happen to you. You're going to change and you're going to become more loving. And if you're not, there's no condemnation. Don't feel bad about it. But maybe the message you're getting at your church is not the real deal because if it was, you would become more loving. And um, the use of the word commandments there, I think in verse four is important to note because, you know, Jesus's primary commandments, what Jesus spoke into the world as commandments were to love your neighbor, love, love the Lord, your God and love your neighbor. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really the, that's the, the, the juice of what he actually said. And obviously there were uh, commandments before and Jesus was, you know, specifically noted, I'm not here to to abolish them and I'm not there, I'm not here to get rid of them, but I'm saying that these are my commandments. And so like, while I think it can be twisted very easily to say that you need to live this perfect life, you need to be a perfect Christian, you need to not slip up in any way that can, um, that can offend God. If you read it that way, it would be directly contradictory to the first two verses. So it's just, Mm. it's way too easy to look back and say, look, but if you do sin, is an acknowledgement of that sin existing and that sin not being uh, something that would exclude you permanently from, you know, the light of, of, of Jesus from, from the light of that love of God. Yeah, it's good. Uh, at verse seven, the header is the new commandment. It says, beloved, I'm writing, you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning, the old commandment, is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Uh, But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Mm. I mean, pretty clear message, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. But still beautifully written. Um, the, 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 basically, it's not a new command. He's the way he words that is is almost funny to me in the in the couple of verses to introduce this notion of light and darkness. It's not a new commandment, but it is a new commandment. But you've had it since the beginning, but it's also a new commandment. So let me tell you this new commandment. 
if you are in the light or say that you're in the light, if you still, if you say that you are a follower of Jesus, if you say that you are um, a part of this mission to spread the love that Jesus wanted to spread on earth, and yet you still hold hate in your heart, then you are not there. Uh, does it mean that you'll never be there? No, I don't think so. But it does say that like you, whatever hatred that you hold in your heart will always be like um, a hole in the bottom of the boat. And um, you're, you're going you're gonna to keep sinking. You can keep scooping the water out, but ultimately you have to like plug that hole and, um, you know, find a way to uh, stay afloat with just your love. Yeah, that's good. I like, I like that um, hole analogy in the boat. And I'm, I'm, and I'm glad you explained. I, I never understood that when, when John's like, oh, it, it, it's an old commandment, but it's new. I, I never understood that. I still don't, but I think you're, you're helping me out here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't tell if it's, um, I don't know. I mean, I probably didn't explain it exactly right, but it does seem to me that he's he's like purposely kind of twisting words around there to make it so that like it's old, but it's new and it's old and it's new. But listen, it's eternal. Like this is, it's been the message. It is the message. It was the message before. It's the message now. It's what we're called to do. Yeah. Um, you know, it may be a simple one, but this metaphor of love being light and hatred being darkness is one that I think that so many people who have experienced uh, any kind of like systemic hatred or prejudicial um, things in their lives would definitely feel as um, as an apt metaphor, because uh, there are times where if you feel hatred uh, projected upon you, and even I think I would say in my own heart, when I felt hatred towards someone else, there is this kind of darkness in your head. There's yeah. this kind of feeling of um, cloudiness, of uncertainty, of um, like you're kind of just grasping around. This is why you don't make very good decisions when you're angry, mm. because you are in the dark you're looking for the light switch, and um, and obviously with love it does. It, and this is like um, again, kind of like a stretched out metaphor. But I think when someone loves someone else, you do feel like you can kind of see the world clearer. You can kind of see uh, colors a little more vividly. You can see lines a little more distinctly. Um, it, it works on on a lot of levels. Yeah. And when you think about light and darkness in terms of like relationships, I mean, like what separates shadows, darkness, something in between, but light is always open. Light is always, we're in the same light. I see you, you see me. I mean, what is love if it's not to know and be known and to be, to know and be known and to accept and be accepted. Right. And as you are, as you come. And I think it's like when we hide parts of ourselves because we think they're unlovable. Well, what is that hiding? It's darkness. I'm not going to show you this. You're not going to see it to you. It's dark. And the Bible talks a lot about how, and it's just common sense. That, like we're talking about this metaphor that light is seen, your eyes are open and then darkness is your eyes are closed. You're blind, you know? Mm. I think um, it can be easy to, to become uh, a night owl, metaphorically speaking. Mm -hmm. um, it, it may be confusing and you may make terrible decisions and you may not be a very good person to the people that you love. But if you are in darkness, I think in a lot of ways, it's almost easier to stay in darkness than it is to, uh, try to find the light. It's like when you flip the light switch on, uh, in the morning and you've been sleeping, your eyes have been closed. You're very, you're very comfortable in the dark. 
Mm. And then you switch that light switch on and you sort of have to shield your eyes and you go, oh God, that's so bright. <laughs> and yeah. in that way, I think it can be shocking for us to try to emerge from that, to try to bring ourselves out of that darkness and to become light uh, or to become, you know, to, to walk in the light because it requires us to shift perspectives. It requires our eyes to adjust mm. and um, it, it, it requires us to wake up, which is difficult. Yeah, that's good. Um, should we move on to verse 12? Yeah, let's go. This is written in, in like in verse, which I thought was kind of strange. Um, I actually kind of want to look at what the voice does with this passage because I, I thought it odd. It's, I mean, it's beautifully written, but I thought it odd that it was, um, that it was written this way, that it was spaced out this way. And obviously any spatial decisions and chapter breaks and anything like that in, in modern translations of Bible were done by translators, not by the people who are writing these scriptures initially. But it does make you kind of wonder why they chose to cut it up this way. Uh, the yes. voice leaves it. The voice leaves it in prose, I believe. Yeah, the voice leaves it all in prose. It's all written flat out. But the ESV takes it into kind of a poem structure. And so I'll dive in. It says, "I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know Him." who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. I always bristle a little bit when I read phrases like the evil one. (laughs) The evil one. It does, it does have this um, sort of mystical notion, like the, the, the physical embodiment of Satan has always made me kind of roll my eyes because <laughs> I've never seen evil that way. I've never seen sin that way. I've always thought that, uh, I think that there is a force of, of darkness. I think there's like a force of um, the things in our lives that, um, that we either give ourselves over to or that tempt us or that cause harm in other people's lives. I, I don't think that that's like um, just something that organically bubbles up within us. I think that there is something that that draws us towards that kind of behavior. But um, like this, the like horned guy with like, with like goat hooves and stuff. Like I just never, <laughs> I never understood it. I never got it. Yeah, yeah. For me, I'm, I'm, I'm more agnostic on that, on, on every side. I mean, at the end of the day, whether, you know, the devil, quote, is just our own darkness or is, if it's an actual, not a hooved thing, but some sort of spiritual whatever, you know, who cares? I mean, it's, it's just how do we get free from it? And then we cannot even worry about it anymore. You know what I mean? It's like, and like John is saying, it's like, how do we overcome evil, whether it's personified evil or our own evil or our, our, our own ignorance and blindness? It's, it's knowing the Father. It's knowing the Word of God. It's knowing that we're forgiven. Um, and that's what really matters, you know? I think it's interesting that he points out, like, to the, to the young men, this is the spiritual young men, not the physical young men. This is, and, mm. and I think that some translations will say, like, 
uh, young men and women or like um, brothers and sisters or something like that. There's a lot of translations that kind of gender neutralize things because I, ultimately I think that that's what the message was um, just because they were like gendered uh, proclivities at the time in writing or speaking doesn't mean that they were completely excluding women from the church. That's ahistorical. I mean, that there, there were women in the church from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, they played a prominent role in Jesus's ministry from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so don't get hung up on the fact that he's saying specifically to the church or to these people in the church, fathers and young men. Uh, this is speaking to people in their spiritual journeys, however they are, however far they are along the way, uh, be they in like, uh, in early maturity or um, late maturity or in infancy. Uh, that's the important thing to note. But John says, I write to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. It's like this, um, mm. the youthful vigor of early faith actually makes it easier for you to overcome the um, temptations and the darkness uh, and, and and make it easier for you to walk in light. But it's like you have to, you have to grow up a little bit, and then once you have, like, your muscles are strong enough, and you can, you can like, burst out of this cave. Yeah, that's good. The last, um, the last, uh, the next section here, actually, uh, 15 and 16 uh, into 17, challenges me a lot. Um, and I want to get into it. We don't have a ton of time left, but we have a little bit of time left, so I want to get into it a little bit. Uh, the header says, do not love the world. And it says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Didn't God create the world? Uh, last time I checked, yeah. Yeah, so. Uh, okay, so. Uh, okay, w- we can track this back to Genesis. We can say the world fell. This is not God's creation as it was intended. And um, and and I guess there's a number of ways that you can kind of dodge around this. But I struggle with this notion of the world. It, it's like the language is too general. I think what they're saying is like the 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 world of um, of darkness, essentially the world of, uh, unforgiving, um, hate filled or otherwise adversarial, um, problems that we face or temptation and self-destruction or, um, or anger and, 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 um, you know, how we hurt each other and, and how other people can hurt us and, and that sort of negativity. But the, the language is so vague in here. It, it really challenges me. It's just like, well, I thought, I mean, I think there are days where I walk around in the world. I think the world is beautiful. There's so many beautiful things on this earth. Like, can we not appreciate that at all? Or is, is that not what the, the call is here? Yeah. I mean, I think a couple of things, um, you know, number one, uh, you know, the Bible does say there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. So like, you know, our, our, our mundane, quote, boring, earthy, created world with roller coasters and IPAs and whatever you, whatever you like doing, that's not going to go away, you know? And uh, I think what's also cool is that, you know, one member of the Godhead, if you believe in the Trinity, became a human and is still a human. It's still a created, earthy, 
worldly human, you can say. And, and so it, that's really cool to think about because, you know, if God himself is like totally down with like becoming a human, then being human must be pretty fucking awesome. If God can do it. You know what I mean? If you really think about that, like Jesus didn't take off his humanity when he resurrected from the dead. No, he he resurrected from the dead in his humanity. And it's in his current humanity that he sits at the right hand of the father. So, you know, I definitely agree with you that, that the world doesn't mean the earth or, or the physical world. Um, It's kind of like, like you said, it's like, it seems like God made the world to be a certain way, a place of love and, and connection and togetherness. And in our own isolation and alienation from one another, we've kind of created our own world. It's like God created something and then we decided to be God ourselves and create our own world. And mm-hmm. what's in that world? He says right here in verse 16, it's all that is in the world. What's he talking about? It's the lust of the flesh. Well, what's the flesh? I mean, when the, when the Bible talks about the flesh, it doesn't mean like your body is bad or beat up your body or whatever. Or don't, don't, don't go watch a rated R movie. I mean, the fl- <laughs> you know, flesh is just what flesh is just humanity without God. Like if we were just flesh and bones and that's it, but we're not just flesh and bones and that's it. Like, 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 we, like we talked about earlier, we exist inside of God. We, God exists inside of us by just by nature of, of creation. But even though we live in God and God lives in us and we live in Christ and Christ, Christ lives in us, if we really want to, because we have our own personal distinction and freedom, we can just live as if God wasn't here. And that's the flesh. It's it's humanity without God. It's what humanity outside of God wants. Well, what could you want outside of God? If God is love, all you can want outside of God is hate and darkness and fighting and all all that stuff, right? Mm, So I totally totally agree with you that I I think that this, this is not about the created order or the cosmos or the universe or just doing fun things. I'm very much into culture and being human and all that music and all that stuff, you know, but if, if anything is going to feed my, feed my dark side, well, yeah, that's, that's a, a, a world thing, a worldly thing that, that I don't want to do or partake of. But most things that Christians, a lot of like conservative Christians don't want to do it's just like weird strict rules and it's not about like walking in love or light or whatever, you know? Mm. Well, I think that like the, the, any use of the flesh or desires of the eyes and lust and things like that uh, will always draw people to say, and, and if you read enough Paul, you'll kind of think this way too, but that like, yeah, uh, sex is just inherently like sinful. It can be avoided at all costs. And if you can avoid it, then you should. Uh, and, and there's really like a, it's a, it's a necessary evil or something like that. Um, the, the turn of phrase that I think is the most important in, in talking about what the world is outside of God and what the world is separated from God is the pride of life. And the, the footnote in the ESV makes note to mention or pride in possessions. Mm. And that's, that's greed. And that I think is a much, uh, more, prevalent, uh, a much more pervasive, a much more um, uh, virulent issue in our world today. I, I mean, obviously, like, sex has run rampant, and our society is kind of obsessed with it, and, and in its own way, that, that that causes a lot of problems, and I think damages a lot of people's minds in, in some ways, but sex isn't inherently evil. Sex isn't inherently uh, bad, um, and I don't think that's even what they're saying here. I, I don't know the actual original phrasing of this in the Greek, but I wonder if the world used here is actually cosmos as in the, the Greek, the Greek word. Cause you, I heard you uh-huh. use that phrase and I was like, that might actually be the word that John used here, but I don't know that that's actually what, what John meant. Right. Um, it seems to me that, yeah, what he details in, um, in that world 
is what he's saying to avoid or what he's saying to be careful about. Mm-hmm. And I think one more thing too, it's important is that, you know, as far from what I've learned, you know, when Christianity was new, I mean, they, you know, the way that they talked about the their surrounding culture, it seems like, and again, I don't want to like generalize, but it seems like most of society were just like selfish assholes who didn't care about <laughs> one another. And so like these, this new community of people who were like being other centered and loving to them, the world that they lived in was a place you didn't want to be because everyone was not walking in love and light. Everyone was just like, whatever, just being selfish and hurting one another. So it make you know, that, that verbiage in the context of the time they lived in, and maybe even in our time, I don't know, but it seems like it just makes sense. Like, oh yeah, the world's crazy, right? No, everyone's walking in darkness, but we're different. Not like in a, in a snobby way, but just like, we don't want to, we don't want to hurt ourselves. Like they're hurting themselves, you know? And it's like, it's always important to note that in these early writings that they all thought that the second coming of Jesus was imminent, like mm-hmm. not in a few hundred years, but like literally it could happen tomorrow. So while I, I think, especially in the world that we live in today, it's easy to let those words kind of resonate and be like, yeah, everything's falling apart. Yeah. The world that we're living in is, is falling apart. I think it, it, what's important to focus on is that like, yes, it will come to an end. I think eventually it will in its own way. Uh, it will be reborn in its own way too. But um, the, the, the phrasing of uh, the ending of things, the ending of things as they are, and, and the urgency to change yourself and to repent and to, um, to, to walk in light um, is, is heightened because they genuinely thought that this could happen any day now. And as many people as we can get on board, that's, you know, that's great. That's a, a feather in our cap for, for, you know, what we've done for, for Jesus. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's a section here on the Antichrist, but I don't think we have time. <laughs> I don't think we have time to really tackle this. Um, you, don't want, you don't want to talk about Left Behind or whatever that movie's called? <laughs> uh, well, okay. I might be strategically avoiding this passage because I, again, I bristle at passages that, even though earlier in this chapter it said that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, we are now narrowing our focus and we're mm. now specifying what it is that actually allows you to be saved. Although there's a way to read this that says, well, yeah, the sins of the whole world were forgiven, uh, but forgiveness is different from salvation and salvation and eternal life are, are different. And so, you know, depending on how you read that, it can be taken a number of different ways. But ultimately, that I believe could be an episode of its own. So uh, with that, I think we should we should probably wrap up. But um, I did want to see if there was anything that you, I usually close my episodes with a, a poem. Um, but before I do that, I usually um, just see, did you want to plug anything? Is there um, a show perhaps, maybe a podcast that you do that might be of interest to folks that uh, listen to this show? Yeah. Um, again, I, I do hold Christian beliefs, but also Buddhist beliefs. And uh, I actually have an episode about uh, my growing up in Christianity and what I felt like I didn't get in, in uh, evangelical Christianity. And so the episode is on my podcast. Uh, you can find it at humansordivine.blog. And I think it's called, and this is a radical title, so don't get scared. I think it's called uh, something like Buddha saved me when Christianity couldn't. <laughs> um, and so I'll let you figure out what that means, uh, audience, but I think, uh, you might want to check that out here, uh, why I chose to, uh, check out Buddhism and how it made me a better Christian. So, 
I mean, that's fascinating. I've, I've heard a few episodes of humans are divine. I love it. Uh, I think your voice is, uh, your, your voice is really important. And, um, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show to, to speak with me about, uh, gosh, I feel like we probably could have done another couple hours if we really wanted to, but, um, but a passage that is um, foundational and very important. I think highlights something that, uh, Buddhists and Christians at their heart share, which is this notion of, of peace and, and love. And as, as, uh, as difficult as that can be to live out in our world, it never stops being important to, to love each other and to, um, and to love God and appreciate that the, the gifts that you've been given and, and, um, and yeah, so now I'm rambling. So the, um, this week's poem is by Donald Justice. Fragment to a mirror. Behind that bland facade of yours, what drafts are moving down, what intricate maze of halls, what solitude of attics waits bleak at the top of the still-hidden stair, and others' windows, yours, that open out on such spectacular views, those still bays yours where small boats lie at anchor, abandoned by their crews, the parks nearby whose statues doze forever in the sun, the stricken avenues along which great palms wither and droop down their royal fronds, and the parade is drummed to a sudden inexplicable halt. Tell me, is this the promised absence I foresee in you, when no breath any more shall stir the milky surface of the sleeping pond, and you shall have back your rest at last, your half of nothingness? Thanks, everybody. When all the talking is done I go to the lake to unwind To gain a clear sense of mind Under the western sky Oh